that I'm sure plenty of you could plug in at some point in that history that was just depicted. Someone came up to me after second service and actually said, Zach, a brother in Christ, Zach, I was raised in Saudi Arabia in a community of vibrant believers, which you wouldn't get from that map, would you? But nonetheless, the point of that video is to give us a glimpse of just how dynamic and diverse the movement of Christianity has been for 2,000 years. And just the reality that no message has changed and transformed more hearts, more communities, more families, more lives than the message that Jesus is Lord in Christ. That is the message of the gospel of Jesus. Amen? My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, welcome. We are glad you were here with us this morning. We continue in the book of Acts in a series called New Beginnings. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your own Bible, feel free. You can open up to Acts chapter 2. And as you do that, I'm going to pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the gathering of your saints. And Lord, we pray for clarity this morning as we look at the beginning of your church. We pray for soft hearts to receive the truth that Peter declares in the sermon we're going to look at today that Jesus, you are Lord and Christ. Lord, may this just ripple not uh, in, in every aspect of our lives, our relationships, our family, our sense of identity and purpose. Um, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, and I'm also going to say, because I can, because I'm up here this morning, that to my wife, happy birthday. Yeah, there we go. I, I mean, whoa, I'd get in trouble if I didn't when I'm preaching on it. So I'm just kidding. I wouldn't, but okay. We know things. We know we believe things to be true for two really major reasons. You could probably come up with others. These are two big ones. One, it makes sense. You've observed it. Perhaps you've seen it proven, so you believe it, okay? Option number two is whatever it is that you believe makes sense out of something else. Those are your two major reasons. So on the one hand, again, it makes sense. You've observed it. You've seen it proven. On the other, to believe it makes sense of a bunch of other things, and all of us do operate on both of those bases all the time. Finish the phrase for me. I'll believe it when I... That would be option one. That's an example of option one. But ironically enough, you actually can't prove the reliability of your own eyes. Philosophers have been wrestling with this for centuries. It's called the problem of induction. Why? Because you have to use your eyes to prove the reliability of your eyes. So we call a circular argument. You have to assume your eyes work in order to prove that they work. It's a circular argument. However, I encourage you, use your eyes. And for most of you, trust them. Why? Because it makes sense out of your experience. Right? You believe your eyes work, not because you can prove they do. You believe your ears work, not because you can prove that they do. You can't. But because to do so makes sense out of your experience. Again, we both do both things. Today, as we look at the rest of Peter's sermon to the Jews, okay, Peter today kicks off the movement we just watched on that screen. All of that begins with the words Peter utters in Acts chapter 2. And what does he do? 
He goes with option two. We see a little bit of both, but he highlights very clearly that what you've been reading in God's word makes sense in light of Jesus. What you see before you and all the craziness that's happening in Acts chapter two, it makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is. And that's where we're gonna find ourselves today. The flow of this sermon is gonna be this. Peter, gonna look at, the, we're talk about the plan to start off with. What God was doing with Jesus. And then we're gonna pivot to the present reality, what it is that they're experiencing and how to think about it in the present. And then finally, the people's response. Those are gonna be the three big things that we hit as we look at Acts 2, verses 22 to 41. And so, number one, the plan of redemption. We're gonna start in verse 22. Men of Israel, he's talking to a group of Jews. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. So th remember, that's option one. Okay, they've, they've, a lot of them have saw when Jesus was alive. They saw it. As you yourselves know, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. That word definite here, the idea of fixed appointed, set, unmoving. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I wanna, I wanna park here for a moment because Peter just kind of assumes, he says something that most of us probably didn't realize on first glance, actually deeply offensive to Western philosophical sensibilities. I'm gonna unpack it for a moment. Before we get there, I want to back up. In our world, I'll just use my marriage as an example. If we want to design a room, okay? Me and my wife are very different people, very different interests. And let's say we want to design a room. The more you would think, you'd probably assume she gets what she wants, probably means the less I get what I want. The more I get what I want, the less she gets what she wants. And in marriage or in friendship, you have this thing compromise, or maybe both of you are somewhere in the middle, but neither of you get everything that you want. And so what you have in that kind of instance are two wills that are mutually exclusive. You have two people, two agents, two agencies that are mutually exclusive. You can't have both simultaneously. And what we do is we import this into the text. Peter very clearly says regarding the death of Jesus, God ordained it and the people freely chose it. You could also say God ordained that they freely chose to kill Jesus. Now in our Western sensibilities, in our post-enlightenment, hyper-individualistic, super-autonomous worldviews, that seems like a contradiction. You can't say God ordained it and they freely chose it. You can't have both those things at the same time. I just want to push back a little bit because people in the past didn't struggle with that like we do. In fact, Joseph, at the end of Genesis, after being a victim over and over again, what does he say to his brothers at the end of Genesis? He says, hey, because they had sold him into slavery and then he ended up in prison and falsely accused. He said, 
What you planned for evil, God planned for good. Wait a second, you're, you're, you're telling me that Joseph saw everything that happened to him as ordained by God and yet fully freely chosen by his siblings. And he didn't have a problem with it. Now there's one area of your life where you don't have a problem with this. I'd be willing to bet money for most people in this room, there's one thing you do that assumes this all the time. And it's prayer. If you have a friend who's addicted to substance and you go to God and you say, Lord, Lord, would you redeem them out of this addiction? Would you remove this addiction? Would you change their heart, Lord? What you're actually asking is God, would you ordain that they want to walk away from this substance? That's what you're asking. Anytime you pray for a change in someone else, this is what you ask, that God would ordain that they freely choose. I just think it's interesting how much we struggle with this. And yet God's people throughout the Bible don't really have a problem with it. And it's okay without being a cop-out to allow mystery to be a little uncomfortable sometimes. So Peter's preaching to the people and this is exactly what he says. He said, God did it, you chose it. Continuing on, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. So what Peter's about to do, he's about to take a Psalm, Psalm 16, and he's gonna make sense of it based on who Jesus is. So, so reciting this Psalm, Peter says, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Now Peter's about to argue that David isn't talking about David what, what, based on what he's about to say, that he's talking about Jesus. Verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. In the Hebrew, Sheol, this idea of that you will be, not be left dead. Or let your holy one see corruption. It's another way of saying, let my body decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter's trying to explain what David was actually saying. David in this Psalm is talking about someone whose, whose body, whose soul will not be left in Hades. They will not be forsaken in death and their body will not actually decay. And so Peter in this genius, he takes something that the Jews love, that they value, that they understand, something they would have known, something written on their hearts and their minds. He takes something, Psalm 16, and he says, this thing that you love and that you value actually makes more sense in light of Jesus. This thing that you know actually makes more sense if Jesus is who he says he is, Lord and Christ. Because Jesus was not abandoned to Hades. He wasn't. He died, but he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose from the grave. His body did not decay. He got a new body. He rose and he walked around and they saw him. I just want to think about the method that Peter's using for a moment. I want to think about the method because this is something we can do. And I'm going to talk to the Christians here for a moment. We make evangelism and apologetics, we make it really heady. We have to make it really heady. We have to make it really argumentative. 
We boil it down into subjects that intimidate us like archeology span or science or philosophy or whatever it is. Peter here takes something that he shared with them, something they both valued. And he just showed them that Jesus actually makes more sense of it. And in our world, there's plenty of things that we can do in the same way. Whether you're starting with the conception of love, justice, beauty, morality, dignity. If you are not a believer and you strongly agree in this idea of justice in the world, that sense of justice makes so much more sense if Jesus is who he says he is. Because a worldly sense of justice is whoever's in power gets to decide or whoever's the loudest gets to decide. It doesn't make sense of how you actually feel. But if justice is anchored to a transcendent God, that's different. Dignity, your worth, your value. There's people in this room who feel worthless for whatever the reason. Something's been done to you or by you, whatever the reason. And yet you know deep and down inside that's not how it should be. And you can look at the cross and you can see that Jesus was willing to pay a price for you. In fact, he was willing to pay exactly what you're worth, everything for you. Why? Because you're his treasure. And in a godless world, you are worth whatever it is you really want to be worth. And on some days, that's pretty much nothing. But your sense of dignity and purpose and value makes total sense if Jesus is who he says he is. This is Peter coming to his Jewish audience trying to get them to understand, trying to get them to embrace this worldview. Continuing on, pivoting into the present reality. Acts 2, verse 33. It goes to the present. Being therefore exalted, talking about Jesus, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, you weren't here last week, Gary talked about Pentecost, tongues of fire, people speaking all sorts of languages. The Holy Spirit is moving and doing a bunch of things. And someone's like, oh my gosh, they're drunk. And he's like, no, it's only 9 a.m. They can't be drunk, which is an interesting excuse. Okay, think about explaining it in a different way. All right, if it were 6 p.m., maybe, <laughs> but 9 a.m., no. And so there's a lot going on and he's trying to explain it why they're seeing what they're seeing. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, now quoting Psalm 110, this is the most, one of the most quoted scriptures in the entirety of the New Testament. It's quoted and alluded to all over the place. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, Peter does it again here. He does it again, but he does it with present circumstances. So before, you know, he was looking, he looked back at Psalm 16. He's like, this makes more sense if Jesus is who he says he is. And now he's saying, he's looking at all the, the, the event happening before them, what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's trying to explain to them, David in Psalm 110, he talked about how someone is going to ascend to the right hand of God. If that person is Jesus, this makes more sense. And in the Hebrew, that phrase, 
Psalm 110, he quotes, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, if you were looking at the Hebrew version of that, the first Lord is Yahweh, the Lord, said to my Lord, Adonai. Yahweh speaks to Adonai, sit at my right hand. And that's what he said. Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand. The question is, who is Adonai? And Peter's trying to explain to them, it's not David, it's Jesus. Because only the one sitting at the right hand could send the Holy Spirit to do this. And if Jesus is the one sitting at the right hand, he could do this because this is validating his ministry, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. That's the argument being made. It isn't merely a change in what they know. It's a change in their worldview. Peter's offering up a change in the lens through which they understand the Bible, through which they understand the world, through which they understand the events taking place before them. It's not merely a matter of knowledge. He's not just passing on data. It's a change in the lens. And again, this is a problem with our evangelism and our apologetics at times, is we just make it all about being able to communicate. If I can get you to know what I know, then you'll believe what I believe which puts a lot of pressure on you to know a lot, doesn't it? But it doesn't address the lens. It's important, especially as we disciple others, especially as we disciple our kids. Now for me this week, this isn't particularly pertinent, this idea of a lens, because I started wearing glasses this week. My eyes were getting crazy strained, and so I had to get them examined and all this stuff. And prescription's not a lot, but I'm supposed to wear them, and it's, actually, it's, it's been helping. There are people in here who, if you don't wear your glasses, things are just blurry, okay? Maybe you could squint a bunch, and like you could make stuff out if you wanted to. But when you put them on, it makes them clear, right? That's one of the things that Peter is trying to do with this sermon, is he's taking the text, which they could squint through, but it still could make everything out, and he's taking the events around them, which the people could squint at and kind of tell, but not to make total sense, and he's trying to get them to put on the Jesus lens so that it's clear, so that all of a sudden what they're seeing makes sense in its fullness. As we think about discipling, as we think about our kids, and even if you don't have kids, you might work with kids, you might have grandkids, you might find yourself teaching or coaching or instructing kids as we disciple kids. This hit me hard this week because your kids, we often think about discipling kids as just getting them to know the Bible. There's plenty of people who know the Bible and don't love Jesus. One of the things we neglect is remembering that we wanna raise kids to have the right lenses on. We want them to understand what's going on in the world through a Christian worldview. When they look at the violence and the destruction with the Jesus lenses on, yeah, we talk about sin, that makes sense. When things out there and people out there get really, really scared, you have a couple options. You can take these off and you can get really scared and your kids can get scared. You put these on. And the Bible says, don't be afraid. And you talk to your kids about peace and about God being in control and his sovereignty. When you get really, really terrible news or you get stressed out to no end, whew, kids are watching. 
And do we take these off and think about what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I? Or do we leave these on and say, let's pray. God's got it. You're making a decision about your home, about your finances, about your things, about how you steward everything God's given you. Do we take these off and look like the world? Or do we lead these on and ask God, Lord, what would you have me do with your stuff? But when you raise up people within the church who are being told where the lens is by people who don't, kids smell hypocrites a mile away, do they not? This has been one of the convictions of my heart. Leave the lenses on when life gets hard, when challenges come, when you don't know what to do, when you're stressed, when the world is freaking out, when you're making your financial decisions, when you're making relational decisions, when you're making work decisions. Leave the lenses on. Leave them on. Everything makes more sense when they're on. Finally, Let's look at the response. Peter gives this message that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Christ. And now we get a response starting in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I mean, if you're here today and you're kind of encountered Jesus through worship of the word for the very first time, that may be a response you utter. You may have been a Christian and perhaps just kind of strolling along for a long time, and perhaps that's something you need to say for the first time in a long time. God, what do I do? Because you've taken control of your life for the longest time. But they hear this, these Jews who are responsible for killing Jesus, at least many in the crowd, they hear this and they're like, well, what do we do? And this is what Peter says. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness. This is the concise version. He didn't put down the whole sermon here. Okay, many other words. But he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation because the world is full of things that want to distort and distract the affections of your heart. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the beginning of that map that we saw earlier. This is the first mass conversion. People coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now there's something I got to point out here. It's really important. And if you grew up with a Catholic background, you probably noticed something, something that we just read probably stuck out to you quite a bit. And I want to address it. He says in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. Now go ahead and put up the literal reading for this. Yeah. Okay, repent, the word, the Greek word for baptize is in the middle voice. So that's, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And there's a Greek word there, ice, the forgiveness of your sins. That Greek word ice that's translated for in most of your translations has two kinds of meanings. Even in the word for, it has two different kinds of meanings. It can refer to purpose or grounds. It can do either of those things. And so if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, you grew up probably being taught that this is referring to purpose. Be baptized in order that 
your sins would be forgiven. Which is why as a baby, they would have babies baptized to wash original sin. That's really important. But for a lot of reasons, in particular, plenty of scripture that we see elsewhere that we'll get to in a moment, believe it makes much more sense to interpret it in the way of grounds. So that you could say, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ on the grounds of your sins being forgiven. And that's perfectly okay in the grammar of the sentence. But as we look at what Peter says here, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins that you receive the Holy Spirit, what we see are four ingredients of conversion. Four ingredients of conversion. Some of you, if you're like a really good Protestant, you might be, whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second. It's just, it's just grace, grace and faith. I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong, but we're going with the text and this is plenty elsewhere. You'll understand in a moment. These are four things that are present in some way, shape or form, not all in the same way, in some way, shape or form in the conversion of someone who was once walking in the way of the world to now walking in the way of Jesus. These are four things. Okay, before I, I go into them, I'm actually, I'm gonna invite the ushers. You can come forward. Uh, They're going to uh, be handing out communion. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then please feel free to take the elements as they go. If, you're just, if this is new to you and you're not really sure where you're standing, you just let it pass. But these four ingredients that we see, one, repentance. And repentance is, is turning from the old way, turning from the world and turning towards Jesus. Stop running away from God and start running towards God. And every now and again, you might feel like you get pushed back a little bit, but you keep going in the same direction. You get turned a little bit. It's like, no, 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 but God, but God, but God. That's repentance, turning from the old towards God. Then we see forgiveness of sins. That those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those who repent of their sins, experience a blotting out of their sins. Meaning, that the burden of your faults and your failures no longer belongs to you. This is one of the most freeing, one of the most liberating, one of the most beautiful parts of the Christian message. That up till, that, 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 that all of the, the, the failed human flaws, all of the sin, all of the ways we've rejected God, that we've hurt people, all of the things, the things that just beat us down, that keep us low, that make us feel unworthy of love. That it, after repenting and after coming to Jesus, that, that Jesus has come to me, my, <laughs> those who need rest and his burden is light. He takes that from you. The burden of the law that you cannot keep, he takes off your shoulders and instead writes on your hearts. If you've given your life to Jesus, if you've repented, you are forgiven. So stop living like it's your burden to bear. Next, we see the Holy Spirit. This is the continued work of an inward change. The Holy Spirit takes up residence and those who give their lives to Jesus. Your body, your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the sanctifying process 
by which the Holy Spirit works in you, that you cooperate with to produce a life that looks more and more like Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And then finally, baptism, which is an outward declaration of that inward change of that commitment. Now we get to certain passages about baptism. I'm sorry, I skipped ahead for a moment. Repentance and forgiveness are related elsewhere in the text. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. What's it saying there? Repent, turn from the world, why? That sins may be blotted out. That when God sees you in judgment, he no longer sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Thank the good Lord he's patient because we need it, do we not? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, on the one side you have repentance, on the other you have the, those who perish. So repentance puts you in a place where you're no longer in the category of those who perish. You are forgiven. But as we get to baptism, there are other passages we see that link baptism really closely with someone becoming a part of God's family. In Galatians 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's a close connection. That means, kind of seems to make baptism really, really important, doesn't it? Acts 22, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That kind of really closely associates baptism with this idea of washing, doesn't it? What in the world is going on there? Well, we have to see that in light of other passages. And I have an illustration I'm gonna use in a moment. But in John 1:12, he says, but to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave right to become the children of God. Doesn't say anything about baptism. To all who received him and believed in him, to all who trusted in him, they became a part of the family of God. Ephesians 2:8. for by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. No mention of baptism as being a saving act. And then also you have, as Jesus is being crucified, you have a criminal on one side who says, Lord, will you remember me? And to which Jesus responds, today you will be with me in paradise. No baptism. Jesus wasn't lying. However, we have to be careful not to devalue baptism, which many of us do. It's part of the list. It's really important. So I'll give you an illustration. Think of a wedding. Most of us have at some point probably attended a wedding or at least watched one in a movie. Think about the different ingredients of a wedding. You have witnesses, you have someone performing the ceremony, you have vows, maybe rings. And then at the very, very end, after the bride and groom are declared, what happens? A kiss, a kiss. Now, it would be strange, and I've been to and performed many weddings, it would be strange for someone to say, I wanna do all of the stuff that technically makes me married. I don't wanna kiss my spouse. I don't wanna do it, ever. I just, I just, wanna, I, I just wanna do all the stuff that, that makes it so. And if you heard that, the response wouldn't probably, I mean, you could say, well, you should, but honestly, it'd probably be more appropriate to say, shouldn't you want to? 
The kiss happens after you're declared husband and wife. It is an outward declaration of what is a commitment that's already been made. And so when someone who comes to Jesus, like, I don't wanna, I don't know how I feel about baptism. It's like, wait a second, shouldn't you want to be baptized? Every time it's mentioned in the text, it's mentioned with people coming to Jesus, with people, like the people who know Jesus are the people who are baptized because they're never divorced from one another in the same way that you probably aren't gonna attend a wedding. I could see some smart Alex coming to me saying, I want you to perform a wedding. We're not gonna do a kiss just to make a point. But you hear where I'm coming from. Baptism, an outward declaration of an inward change. And that is what we celebrate two weeks from today is over 20 people are gonna be baptized to declare Jesus' lordship in their life, which is an amazing thing. I hope you're here in two weeks when we do that. But Peter, to this group of Jews, he tries to get them to understand in light of what the text says and in light of what they're seeing, who it is that Jesus is. And then the Holy Spirit cuts them to the heart and they say, what shall we do? And then he says, repent. And if you're overdue for that, repent. If you got sin going on, that you've been hiding, that you've been keeping, repent, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. And on the basis of that forgiveness, at some point be baptized and know that the Holy Spirit will take up residence in you and will help you look and live and love more like Jesus. Things won't stop being hard but God will be with you through it all. And today we celebrate communion together. And communion is a thing we do to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. All of that is possible because of what Jesus did on the cross when he gave his life for you and me. All of it's possible because of that. And today we take a few moments to remember that together. But before we do, I'm gonna give you all a minute, a minute of quiet. If you have something to repent of, do it. If you have something to confess, do it. I'm gonna give you a minute, quiet with the Lord. We'll come back and we'll take the bread and cup together.